On this week's episode, you're going to hear my guest and I discuss whether it's worth it for young people to enter journalism. And you're going to hear my guest say, well, no, it's not. I love this episode and I love this guest. I think he's one of the great writers of my lifetime and he's a really good guy to boot. But I disagree with him strongly. Journalists are needed more than ever. We're needed to record history. We're needed to entertain. We're needed to enlighten. We're needed to inform. But most important of all, we're needed to keep the powerful in check. So politely, I disagree with my guest take. If you want to be a journalist, be a journalist and fight to accomplish that dream. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Alan Richmond, the former food and wine writer for GQ, who has won 16 James Beard Foundation Journalism Awards for excellence in culinary journalism and is simply one of the great wordsmiths of my lifetime. This is episode number 205. Let's sling some yang. Hi, well, Alan, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I just want to say, whenever I do these, I always try to find something in the archives that's going to make the guests say, ah, or oh, or ah. And here's what I found. July 19th, 1978, a UPI story. Boston Globe sports writer Alan Richmond said Tuesday he was recovered and taking a vacation after a celebrated bout with infectious hepatitis that sent a scare through baseball. Members of the Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees, and Baltimore Orioles received precautionary inoculations after Richmond discovered on July 5th that he had hepatitis. And I actually thought for a minute that it was a Boston Globe April Fool's story, but it wasn't. This is real, correct? What happened is I, I was a sports writer back then, and, and I had been in the Boston Red Sox locker room. I, I wasn't usually a, a baseball writer. You know, I wasn't elegant enough to be a baseball writer in those days. That was, that was Peter Gammons. Do you remember him? Of course. But I happened to be covering or doing a, a feature story, and I was in the locker room. And then the next couple of days later, I went to see some doctor. I have no idea what the appointment was about. And he says, I think you have hepatitis. Well, that caused that caused everything to go wild because, well, actually, later, weeks later, he said to me, I don't think you had hepatitis. <laughs> but meanwhile, there was headlines in the newspapers. One one newspaper actually had a headline calling me the man who killed baseball. Uh, it wasn't a major paper, believe me, but um, it was interesting and I know that all the uh, all the Red Sox got shots for it. I don't know what what shots do you get for hepatitis. I don't even remember. But they got shots, and uh, the other team. I don't know what the other team was, but nobody else did. And it turned out I think that I didn't have hepatitis, but no one is really sure if I had it or not. You're. It's really interesting because you are known. Obviously, you are known as a food and wine guy, and and that is uh, where your fame as a writer comes from. And. It is interesting that your background really is as a sports writer and you were, you were a sports editor of the student newspaper Penn. You wrote for the globe. You wrote in Philly. You were once asked, I read a quote that I really liked of yours. You said, whenever I'm asked what I do for a living, I don't say I'm a writer, a reporter, an editor, or heaven help me a foodie. I say, I'm a journalist. I'd love to see more people take up that cause. And I wonder how being a sports writer helped you, hurt you either or neither 
uh, become a food writer? Well, really not, not very much, but I, but I, I can talk about what you're saying because it's very interesting to me. By the way, I remember when I, when I went to, uh, I covered my first Philadelphia 76ers game for the Philadelphia Bulletin. I went out to the press. You know, we were along the floor in those days. They had tables along the floor. And I sat down. I, I walked out of the press room for my very first game with like a soda and two hot dogs and put them on the press table to eat during the game. And I remember Stan Hockman, you might not know who he was. He was a, of course. a great columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News. He walked up to me and said, kid, you're going to eat your way out of this league. <laughs> was that the 72, 73, 9 and 73 Sixers? I was the beat writer for that. The coach was uh, Roy Rubin, who had coached at Long Island. A fellow named Jack Kaiser, who covered my basketball for the Philadelphia Daily News. He labeled him poor Roy Rubin. And every reference to him in the Daily News was poor Roy Rubin. It drove Rubin crazy. I was a little jealous of the success he had with that. Before we even get to food and everything. So that was a team. Fred Carter was a leading scorer. He averaged 20 a game. You had Leroy Ellis. You had John Block. You had Manny Leakes. Kevin Lockery was on that team. What was it to cover maybe the worst team in the history of the NBA? I'm sort of impervious to um, people hating me. You know, uh, it doesn't bother me at all. And I, I wasn't exactly beloved. I think Jack Kaiser was tougher than, on a team than I was, but he was more respected because he had been around for a long time. It wasn't fun, but it wasn't so bad because it was, you know, the same thing I'm talking about. I'm a journalist. I cover whatever it is that I have to cover, and I don't let it get in my way with emotions for the most part. Uh, and so I didn't find it all that terrible. I do remember once, though, um, you know, we traveled with a team in those days. That made it a little harder. You know, the, that doesn't happen anymore. I remember being on a plane, sitting in my seat, and um, Hal Greer, totally drunk, walks down the aisle of the plane, st- stops in front of me in my seat, and points at me and says, you're nothing, you're nothing. <laughs> that was my worst moment covering the team. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather cover an awful team than a mediocre team? Oh, yeah, nothing's worse than mediocre. I mean, people were interested in what was going on with the 76ers. I wish I'd had more experience because if I had more experience, I could have done a better job. Um, but, I, I, you know, I did a good job. Listen, I'll tell you one thing. Can I brag for a minute? Please. Uh, I was a sports writer at the, at the Boston Globe. This might explain everything. The sports editor of the Boston Globe once said of me, Richmond is the greatest sports writer I ever saw who knows nothing about sports. <laughs> you had a line that 72-73 season. You wrote... Pregnancy is one of the few uncomfortable things that lasts longer than the NBA season. That's a great line. Thank you. I'm going to remember that now. I don't remember it. It wasn't really terrible. I mean, the, the coach, Roy Rubin, was a terrible coach and, and really was out of his league there. And then Kevin Lockery came on to be the coach. And, you know, he had lied to me about becoming the coach because I had a tip that he was going to become the coach. And I went up to him and said, I hear you're going to become the coach. You replace." He says, no, it's absolutely not true. And he lied to me. And I never forgave him for that. So I didn't warm up to Kevin Lockery. You don't warm up to someone in journalism, someone who lies to you. It just doesn't happen. All right. So how did, back to what I was saying, how did sports prepare you or not prepare you or make you a journalist or not make you a journalist when it came to ultimately covering food? Well, I covered, you know, there was, there was much in between that. From, from being a sports writer, I went to the New York Times as a, as a beat writer. I was a Metro reporter for the New York Times. 
And that was another, that was a jump. Um, I left after a while because I couldn't stand the people I was working for there. I went back to the Globe as a, I was a writing coach and I was a columnist. So I did everything. It, that's what I say when I mean I was a journalist. I, I never thought of myself as, as any of those things. I never thought of myself as a sports writer, as a writing coach, as a columnist. I was a journalist and I tried to follow the rules. And that made it easy for me to make the switches. I had no trouble at all. I'll tell you, the food writing thing um, was rather interesting, if you want me to jump to that. I had gone to GQ as a wine writer and a feature writer, write, write profiles, because Art Cooper, the wonderful editor of GQ, hired me away from People Magazine, where I was working, and I was doing these profiles. And he needed someone to do cover stories for him, and he hired me for that reason. And then... What happened was he also had me doing the wine column for GQ because I knew something about wine. And he, and he said, well, if I hire you, if I let you do the wine column, I don't have to pay somebody else to do the wine column because you're already on staff. So that's how I got that job. And then later on, there was a recession in the early 90s. And he, he had a wine columnist, me, and a food columnist. And he did said, I don't have room for both of them, both you and the other guy. I'm, I'm shrinking a little bit. So I have to get rid of one of you and I'm going to get rid of the other guy because once again, I don't have to pay you. So I'm going to make you the food columnist. I don't understand why food worked out so well for me so quickly because the first year I was doing food for GQ, they had something new come up called the James Beard Awards. And I won the James Beard Award for restaurant criticism the first year I ever did it. I don't understand it. I don't know why it worked for me because I, listen, I knew a lot about wine, but I was never a success as a wine columnist. But this worked for me. For some reason, my, my take on food, my approach to food worked perfectly. And I, I, it was a success. Can I explain it? No. I actually started my career out of college at the Nashville, Tennessean as their food and fashion writer. It was the only job they had open. And I knew nothing about food. I can't cook. <laughs> I was unqualified and I was awful. I was brutal. And you make it sound in a way like you don't need to be blank or blank or blank or blank to be a successful and appropriate food writer. That's kind of blows my head up because I feel like I was so bad at it because I knew nothing about it. You had to have entered with some knowledge, no? Well, I love food. I, I love going to restaurants. My mother was a fabulous cook. I was always interested in food. I, I think it all came down to me loving, loving food and loving writing about it and loving the people I wrote about who were, you know, when I was doing these stories. I don't know anything more than that. My knowledge was nothing more than that. I wasn't a good cook. I mean, it isn't, I'm not a foodie. It wasn't that I knew much about food. Maybe it's just that I loved food and cared about food and I had a good taste in food. No one ever went after me and said, you don't know what you're talking about. I remember much later, I, I wrote... This was me a couple of years ago. I wrote a, a piece saying that a restaurant in New York had the best steak in America for, for the year. It was the greatest steak in America. And some woman from L.A. just said, I'm going to go see if this Richmond knows what he's talking about. So she went to the restaurant and had the steak. And she said, he's right. So, you know, I had good taste and I got lucky. And I had to remember one other thing. I had a boss most important thing, I had a boss, Art Cooper, who backed me on everything. He loved me. Boy, you can't do better than that in, in any profession. Wait, I have a weird question. Because um, I've done the same thing where I will say, 
someone is the best, he throws the best slider in baseball or he is the best writer in blank and blah, blah, blah. And someone will come back to me and say, well, have you seen every slider thrown in baseball? And I say, no. And someone could say, well, have you, Alan, have you tried every steak in America? Cause there's some guy in Branson, Missouri who makes his amazing. Is it okay for us to take flourishes? Like it's the best, it's the greatest. It never backfired on me. You, you know, if, yes, if I was, if I was challenged in that way, I'd be in trouble, but, it, but I, eat a, I ate a lot of steaks and I had not had one better. Um, I guess I got away with things, uh, I, I, but I wasn't cheating. I mean, I, I worked at everything. I worked very hard at everything I did. Well, you wrote something I love. You wrote, um, this is from 2014. Uh, the story in GQ was called, Can Danny Meyer Do for Pizza What He Did for Burgers? And you wrote, there's the crust and then there's the topping. I suspect normal eaters, a category that excludes food writers, care more about the toppings and whatever regional style of crust eating. I seldom feel that way unless pepperoni is involved. I consider myself a pizza obsessive, one who participates in a critical analysis of crust. Such studies have something to do with urban sociology, something to do with food science, and something to do with history. Crusts differ, usually in admirable and fascinating ways, wherever pizza is beloved. Number one, I just love everything you write is so sort of breezily accessible while combining a really precise level of knowledge, which I don't think is an easy thing to pull off. When you go to write about crust or you go to write about pizza, I do feel like you have this unique ability to speak for the reader while probably having experienced a million more pieces of pizza than the average guy. Um, is that a conscious effort? Yeah, well, it's a conscious effort not to be a snob about anything. Uh, that is conscious to, to approach it as though I'm a normal human being because the people reading these stories are normal human beings. So I, I have never in my life tried to act as though I knew more than anybody else. But at the same time, I would put my opinion down without even hesitating. And if someone said to me, I think you're wrong. I, I don't, I, I, I had that pizza and I didn't like it. I say, Oh, maybe you're right. But I still that never slowed me down. One thing you have that you've been gifted with, and I wish I had, I have a little of it, but I don't have, it seems like you don't give a fuck what people say. If people get mad at something you write, if some chef is pissed off at you, you don't cower, you don't seem nervous about it. I feel like 90% of people in this business would love to duplicate that, but I don't know how you get it. How do you get that? Well, this is a little bit of a personal story. Okay. All right. I'll tell you the answer. And that's the answer to that question. I grew up as a wimpy Jewish kid in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And my goal in life was never to be afraid of anything. That was really my goal. I mean, that's why I joined the army and went to Vietnam. Okay. I just didn't want to ever be afraid and let anything bother me. And I succeeded. I really succeeded. There's nothing anybody can say to me. There's nothing anybody can do to me that frightens me or makes me tired. Listen, if someone comes up to me with a gun, I'm going to be properly afraid of them. But I got rid of all those childhood fears that and they didn't become adult fears. I became totally confident in myself and, and my ability to handle anything that came my way. And it was really the goal of my life, not to be a journalist, but to never be afraid of anything, never to be cowered by anything. Isn't that an odd, an odd ambition? I always want to be like, I'm not, I don't care. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think, but I have not mastered that. How have you mastered that? By shrugging it off as, as it comes to me. I mean, there is never, I, well, I was lucky in Vietnam, I was not shot at. So I don't know if that would be the, you know, the, the differing, the thing that would make it different. But on the other hand, 
I mean, I went everywhere in Vietnam. I went every place. I, I went places you're not that are supposed to be dangerous, and I was never afraid when I went into them. Now, you know, so I never had the ultimate. Did I, did I recover well when I was shot at? But I recover very well when I, someone goes after me. You know, I mean, my famous, I fight with Anthony Bourdain that went on for years. The only thing that bothered me about that fight is I realized I couldn't win it because he was too popular. He was a god. And I was a normal human being. But what he said about me and what anybody said about me, I shrugged it off. I really did. I, I, I wish I knew the answer to it, but it, somehow it, it all came. I remember being in People Magazine's office. This was still well into my, not sure I had achieved this. And I remember I was walking down, I was talking to someone about one of the editors there and about going out on a story. And I said, kiddingly, I said, oh, that's going to that's gonna scare me. And the guy said to me, I don't think you're ever scared of anything. And that was one of the, that was a great moment in my life when it was obvious that it, it didn't bother me. <laughs> What's the absolute angriest, most confrontational moment you've had in your journalistic career? Oh, wow. Well, that was a New Orleans story. That was a New Orleans story. That went on forever. That was in, that was right after uh, the, the hurricane um, and New Orleans was, was flooded and I went down to do a story for GQ, the most hated food story ever written in the history of food stories. Um, and um, I went down, I was there for like 10 days. I made, you know, I, I was talking to people, I was watching, going all over the place. And I decided that New Orleans was doing a lousy job of coming back from this. And that's the story I wrote. Now, everybody else in America but me was feeling sorry for New Orleans. And I was saying, why aren't you doing everything to, to come back from this? And I wrote a story, which I don't think was as nasty as people say it was, nor do I think it was wrong because the people who went after me were the people from New Orleans. And I heard from hundreds of people who were just visitors to New Orleans who said, well, yeah, that's what it's like. You know, you got it right. But that was the toughest thing I went through. That was really tough because, I mean, I would get... Dozens and dozens of emails I would, a day. I would get stories written how, what about a horrible human being I was. And I thought I had to answer them. And I did. I mean, I, when someone was went after me, I'd say, you want to talk about this? And I did it. Um, that was tough, though. I, that, really, that really had me. I'm not going to say I was shaken, but I was, almost, I was overwhelmed by the hatred. I just want to say, first of all, the story is called Yes, We're Open. And November 2nd, 2006. And... Mm -hmm. I'm going to be in the very minority here and say, I love this story. I love everything about this story. And I just want to read a tiny bit because I read it last night and I was like, this is just, you wrote, I've never had much luck eating in New Orleans. I, and it's so funny that that's your lead right after Katrina. I've never had much luck eating in New Orleans. I might be the only person who disliked Ugalas. It's a, a beloved seafood joint where I once stood in line for an hour in wretched early October heat for a po' boy containing a miserly quantity of oysters so overcooked they were like marbles. I believe most, most of the profits made by that establishment came about because of its periodic threats to close, which inevitably brought a rush of business. Uglesitz finally shut down last year to everybody's dismay but my own. On a trip to New Orleans in the early 1990s, I made it my business to eat at the restaurant of Frank Brixton, then coming into prominence as one of the acclaimed new masters of Creole cuisine. I didn't enjoy my meal. Brixton put so many miscellaneous items on every plate that a fellow has to be pretty picky not to like anything. But it was like that way for me. I gave up on the twin tour standbys, Antoine's and Arnaud's, decades ago, just like everybody else. 
I will concede that the one spot that never d- disappoints me is Cafe Du Monde, where the beignets, donuts you and me, are made seconds before they arrive at your table. I think people either take to the city or they do not. They buy into the romance or they abhor the decadence. I know where I stand. I love this story. I really do. I think this is, this is exactly what journalism and criticism is supposed to be, which is unwavering, unsparing, honest, sincere, to the point, and in a way, unsympathetic. Like you're just being honest. Thank you very much for that. It means a lot. But please, if you go to New Orleans, even today, don't tell anybody you know me. So why did it bother you? Why did the backlash bother you so much? It didn't bother me. I, I, I had no problem with any individual going after me or anybody criticizing me. It's just that I felt I couldn't ignore anybody who was going after me. I had to answer it. That was my if they're going to spend the time to say how much they're angry at me. I had to answer it. And it went on for weeks and it went on all day. I mean, it was like 12 hours a day for two or three weeks. I was answering emails. I was answering. I was trying to talk to people. And it was exhausting. That's the only way it bothered me. It was just the volume. Was, could I handle any questions they asked me? Sure. I had no problems answering their questions. I, I'm kind of interested. So I reached you initially for a book I'm writing and David Hershey gave me the number. And Hershey said to me, he's like, I'm just warning you. Sometimes he can be a little tough. You definitely earned a little bit of a reputation as kind of an ordinary tough guy in the business. And you never, you know, Alan, he could be tough and he, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is that unfair or is that a fair rep? created through years of being a journalist? I'm not angry. I don't go after people. I mean, the only person I ever went after with Nancy Bourdain, but that's after he called me names in print, which, and you know, the reason I went after him was not that he didn't like me, but I thought his language was, um, I don't want to use, can I use the word? Well, I can use the word. He called me douchebag of the year. And I didn't like that. I thought, I thought his language was inappropriate. That's really, I mean, I don't mind being called a douchebag. You want to call me a douchebag? Fine. But he's, he's, this is a big figure in America. And I thought this was inappropriate language. Now, let me say this right now. I, in fact, when, I, when this all ended and I finally surrendered and said, Bourdain wins, okay? I said, it was, a, it was a man of the 21st century against the man of the 19th century. I'm the man of the 19th century. Right. In other words, he was a man of the time and I was a man of whose time had passed for civility, okay? But that's why I went after Bourdain, because I thought that this man shouldn't use that language and speak like that. And I said, someone's got to say this isn't right. It makes no sense at all. But I was really doing it on principle, not because he hurt me. So if you saw him today, you're walking down the street, and there's Anthony Bourdain. Can you have a pleasant conversation with him, or is it just like... Well, of course, he's, he's passed away, so right. I can't. Oh, yeah, I totally, that was a brain freeze. Let's ignore that question, which I will edit out. And it, forgive I me for being say, a douchebag. It's an interesting thing. Um, when I was, you know, they, they gave a, a huge roast for me at GQ. And Anthony Bourdain came to the roast. Uh, he wasn't going to come, but Eric Repair, the chef of the Bourdain, who's his great friend, said, you should come. And he came. This was the last time I saw him. And he came and he knocked it dead. He was brilliant. Instead of making fun of me, he made fun of GQ magazine and he was hysterical. And after that, the feud was over. We actually, I shouldn't say it was the last time we had dinner afterwards, the last dinner. And maybe I would have seen him again. And I'm so, I am quite sorry, you know. Wait, what was the final dinner with Anthony Bourdain like? Well, this was interesting. This is, I think I like this. We went to um, a, a famous French restaurant, La Grenouille. He wanted to go there. He liked it. 
And I'm sitting there and Eric Repair came along, you know, maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest chef in America. And we're sitting there, the three of us. And after a while, I look at Repair and I say, Eric, do you know what's going on here? And he says, what are you talking about? I said, look, I'm a food writer of some, you know, consequence. And generally, if I go into a restaurant where they know I'm there, I get a little, some attention. You're one of the greatest chefs in America. You go into a restaurant and eat, you get a lot of attention. We're sitting here, no one is even looking at us. Everything's about Bourdain. They are paying no attention to us. They are all over Bourdain. That's how big Bourdain was. We were laughing about it, Eric and I. Yeah. And so the dinner was, he was very nice. He even picked up the check. It was a lovely evening. I was hoping I would see him again, but it never happened. When you'd be writing about food, you'd go to a restaurant and you'd experience the cuisine and you'd go about whatever it is, your process of eating. When you sat down to write, I hate to ask a lame writing question in this way, but like, <laughs> did you have a sort of process or a way? Would you have your notes to your left and would you have something to your right? And would you, what were you trying to do? What were you trying to put forth? How did you kind of go about it? Well, I have my system, which doesn't probably doesn't make any sense. I would sit down um, with my notes in front of me and whatever's in my head. And I would write a first draft, which was no use whatsoever. I'll write a first draft probably and make, and I would make sure it was much longer than the story was going to be. So I'd probably write, you know, maybe three or 4,000 words in one just off the top of my head, just spewing it out and typing it. And I knew that was not going to be the story, but that gets everything out of my head. And by doing that, I would, I would say, oh, this is important. That I would start to see what I have in my head and what would make the story. Now, sometimes I'd know ahead of times if there was, you know, what I was going to write. But I'm talking more not about reviews as much as I'm talking about big feature stories on restaurants and restaurants of a country or a city or something like that. But I always wrote a first draft as fast as I could and as, until I got everything out of my head and out of my notes on paper. And then when I wrote the second draft, that's when I'd start to write. Are you a fast writer? Someone said, once said, all editing, all writing is rewriting. And that's what I believe in. I rewrite and rewrite. No, uh, you know, a 2,000 word story would probably take me a week <laughs> to get done right. because I'd rewrite it every day. I'd write a draft, I'd write a second draft. Next day, I'd write the next draft. And no, I'm not fast at all. I got into a really bad habit when I was at Sports Illustrated, which is a story would be due on Sunday. I'd finish the reporting on Thursday but I really needed the two hours before it was due that pressure on my head to write effectively. And I would wait to the last minute because I needed that. You're, you're not that way. No. I couldn't do it. No, I mean, I mean, I've written on terrible deadlines before, but I'm, I don't like it. No, I don't need that. But I can put pressure on myself to get a good story out. I would, I would like to start a story five days before it's due and write a new draft every day. And then in the last, when I have the final draft, I might look at it three or four times in the last day just to look for little nitpicky things. Right. And if I could, I'd wait till the next morning and look at it again. And then I send it in just to, just to get each word right. And do you read so your not, stuff? Will you open up G, will you then open up GQ and read your article again? No, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, I learned, <laughs> I learned, I mean, first of all, they were, you know, during most of my days at GQ, what got in the magazine, finally, I would, I would see, you know, before it went in. But even then, I didn't want to be disappointed because, you know, I was, there would be some edits and, and there would be some mistakes and that would make me crazy. So 
though I didn't read it again in the magazine. Can you enjoy a Whopper, some fries and a, and a large Coke? Well, if look, I, I, yes, I love, I mean, there's, there's still nothing better in this world than the perfect pastrami sandwich as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can enjoy that. But it's, well, let me, let me, I have to parse that statement because if someone made a Whopper fries and a Coke really well, I'd love it. But you know, you don't find that in a fast food restaurant. You go in the, the Whopper, which should be this tall, is, you know, it's, is, 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 you know, it's been shrunken down. If the meat has been overcooked because they have to cook it to almost well done. You know, it's, it's, I just went, I, I don't want to say the name of the chain. I just went to a chain with my girlfriend. She wanted, she wanted to get fried chicken from a chain restaurant. I won't say which one it is. And it used to be good. And we brought it home. It was inedible. These restaurants, these fast food restaurants, are getting worse every day, I'm convinced. I really am convinced they're getting worse. So that's why I can't enjoy them. If they were done well, of course. I love I love that kind of food. I have a story that you wrote in front of me. You're not even gonna remember it, the odds are right. It's from 1978, March 10th, 1978. And it was, the headline was, Why Flyers Have Been Grounded. And the, head, the lead, which you wrote, was last Saturday in Montreal, the Flyers were a testimonial to the seven deadly sins a team possessed of covetousness, anger, gluttony, envy, sloth, shoddy checking, and miserable goaltending. The Canadians humiliated their tormentors of seasons past 7-1, then looked down upon the remains and were glad. I'm laughing at this team right now, Serge Savard said. I was reading old stories of yours, and I feel like there's one thing that writers who last have in common, which is they don't throw in stories. Like, I, I have not read a piece you wrote, whether it was in GQ, whether it was in the Boston Globe or in Philly, that you were just like, yeah, I'm taking this night off. I just don't, I don't, I'm just throwing this one in. I never, I never, you know, took it easy on a story. I always put everything I could into it. And I thought a lot of it. I, I don't think, I can't remember a story where I, where I took the day off when I wrote it. When I went out and reported a story, I was looking in every direction for a story. I wanted to write a story, even if there was nothing there, that someone said, hey, how did he do that? How did he find something that nobody else could find? You know, and you know, never knew what it was. Um, I don't know why, this reminded me of something. When I was covering the, the um, when I was with the sports columnist for the Montreal Star, the playoffs had just started. I went to the game and Ken, Ken Dryden, of course, the great goaltender for the Canadians, mm-hmm. had been in a bad slump. And at the end of the game, the Canadians won the game. I think it was two to one. Uh, it was the first playoff game. They had been terrible. Dryden was brilliant. Everybody was crowding around him, you know, at the, in the locker room. And I as an, I was an afternoon paper. I had plenty of time to wait for everybody to go away. So everybody's crowding around. They're patting him on the back. They're telling him how great he is. And you're the best. And finally, after everybody left, I walked up to Dryden. And I said to him, well, it's about time you played a good game. And he looked at me and he said, you should write so well. Wow. <laughs> I never forgot that. It's so good. <laughs> so good. And so if you work on it, if you work and work, you'll get it. You know, you'll get something. It'll come to you. Right. Um, that was that was genius, of course, from Dryden. That's really good. Dryden in the booth with uh, Al Michaels during the uh, Miracle on Ice game. Here's here's my bad luck. When I was at those Olympics, I, I covered those Olympics for the Boston Globe, but I couldn't get into the ice I, I couldn't get into the hockey games. I didn't have a pass to get in. I covered bicycle racing. Yeah, nothing happened. I don't know if you heard, nothing happened. Game was a blowout. Russia won easy. You're okay. Yeah. Let me ask you this. 
to me in my lifetime, you're the best food writer. I mean, I've ever read, I can, I consider you the gold standard of food writing. And wow. you wrote for, you wrote for GQ, which was a, a must read publication. And I, I wrote for sports illustrated when the SI was considered a must read publication. And I would say neither of our publications are must read publications anymore in the eyes of the world. People don't, people are not picking up big fat GQ. They're not picking up SI. Is it hard to watch this business you loved and this business that really sustained you for a long time sort of in a way turn to ashes or do you not view it that way? No, no, you're right. You're right. I, I mean, I do love the profession and, and, I mean, more than anything else, since I now identify myself also as a food writer, um, I'm, I'm mostly hurt by what's happening to food writing. And there's, look, I'm not, gonna, I'm not trashing the people who are doing it, the reporters and the writers who are doing it, but they've got, they've, they've got so much against them now. Um, I don't know how they survive. Uh, um, they may be just as talented as anybody who ever lived, but there's, there's no money. The magazines, you know, you look at the food magazines now, they're really just you know, advertisements more than yeah. anything else. You know, most of the stories they send people out on are paid for by, you know, their free trips. So it's so painful to me to see this happen to the profession. There are still some excellent writers. That's not the point I'm trying to make. But how can they do it under these conditions? They, they, they don't get the money. They often have to eat for free. They can't go. I mean, I went on trips. I mean, this couldn't happen. One, you know, one day, um, when, when Jim Nelson was then the editor, he had replaced Art Cooper. He said to me, I want you to write a story on the, the, the seven best restaurants in the world. He said, huh? He said, yes. I got on a plane and went around the world. Wow. I, I went, I mean, I just went all, and by the way, I flew business class. I mean, I remember saying, complaining and saying, well, I'm pretty tired. I had to do this in a hurry. But I mean, it was great. It, what can you imagine? One time I went, I'll tell you another story. One time I went to do a story on, um, I did a story on, on the food of, of, it was an interesting story idea. It, it was funny. It was, an, it was my idea and it actually won a James Beard Award. It was, I said, let's go, to, I want to go to Tokyo. If it's a great food city, it should have something other than just great Japanese food. So I was the first person ever to go to Tokyo and eat no Japanese food. I just ate every other kind of cuisine they had there and wrote this story. Now, I was in Japan for probably 10 days. You know how expensive Tokyo is. Yeah. I came back and I handed my expense account to my boss there. And I said to him, I, mean, I was nervous. I said to him, you know, it's, it's, it's about, it's about $15,000 and that doesn't include airfare. And you know what he said to me? He said, is that all? That's amazing. I was not a spendthrift. But so for someone in Tokyo, you know, I, I, I was careful. But that's, that's what it caused. And, then there was those, and the, look, there's another problem, if I might say so. Um, this is going to get me in tr more trouble. This will get me hated, by the way. I don't think food is as good now as it was during my day. I think the golden age of food in America was started in the late 70s to the 80s and went on until about, you know, turn of the century, maybe a little into this, into this century. Food has gotten to be about trends, about ideas, about, listen, even now it's something, it's about who is cooking the food, not whether the food is good. That doesn't mean they don't make good food, but we're talking about the food that we would, you know, elegant eating, fine dining, that kind of food. So that's a problem too. Everybody is covering the people who are making the food 
rather than whether or not the food is good or not. I see an awful lot of that. You know, the food that we knew in my era, you know, there was all those food trends, but it was everything. It was, you know, went from sushi to French to Japanese to anyway, it went on and on, but it was about the food. It was about the cuisines and about the things people like to eat. And also, you know, we're also in an era where chefs, even the great chefs are doing something that I think is dumb. Every great chef now invents about 10 new dishes a month. Right. Every, you know, these long tasting menus with, with 20 things on them. And then they change all the time. You cannot make that much good food. You cannot create that much food that is going to be world class. You know, the day in my day, when, let's talk about the Michelin guy and the three-star chefs. These great chefs. They're cooking French food, which they know how to cook. They are also creating new dishes. Every year, so they would get famous for those dishes. You know how many dishes they cooked a year they got famous for? Maybe one or two. Wait, I have another question I'm fascinated by. Nine years ago now, 2012, a food reviewer named uh, Pete Wells from the New York Times, savage Guy Ferrari's Guy's American Bar and Kitchen in Times Square, just savaged it. And, you know, his lead was, Guy Ferrari, have you eaten at your new restaurant in Times Square? Have you pulled up one of the 500 seats at Guy's American Kitchen Bar and ordered a meal? Did you eat the food? And it savaged it. And the argument against what Pete wrote was, look, man, it's a Times Square restaurant by a celebrity chef. It's like going to see the movie Godzilla and expecting Gone with the Wind, you know, or Casablanca or Shawshank. It's an unfair take expectation. I actually love the review and thought if you're offering food, you should have expectations. It's good. How do you feel about stuff like that? Well, I've written a lot of negative reviews and I think I'm sometimes funny in my negative reviews. I try mm-hmm. to be, when I'm negative, I try to be humorous rather than nasty. I've always tried that. It doesn't always work. I think Pete Wells' story on Guy Fieri, greatest negative review ever written in the history of journalism. <laughs> I, I don't laugh that easily. I've read that story 20 times and every time I break out laughing. It was so perfect. It was so, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. I am, I, I'm, I'm so jealous of that story. I wanted to have written it and it was fair. It was fair because he, he you know, he basically said the food, he didn't say your food should be fancier or greater. He said, the food you are serving is not done well. And that's what could be unfair about that. I, I, I mean, I feel sorry for Wells because he'll never be able to match that story in a negative review. Nobody will. I have in front of me here. Hey, did you try that blue drink? The one that glows like nuclear waste, the watermelon margarita. Any idea why it tastes like some combination of radiator fluid and formaldehyde? This is great. The whole thing is like pitch perfect. Look, I always say if you can make people laugh, you can get away with almost anything. You shouldn't be criticized for jokes. Say what you want about a guy like Guy Ferrari. Like, I'm sure food is personal to him. I'm sure it matters to him. I'm sure he's trying his best, at least to some degree. As a food critic, do you need to have sensitivity at all toward the people you're writing about? Well, yes, but but let me say this. Let me go back to that. I'm sure Guy Fieri was not in the restaurant the night that happened. I'm sure he, after the beginning of it, when he made his appearance in the restaurant, he was never in the restaurant. So I'm sure he had no idea whether food was good or bad. Now, when that leaves you open to a lot of criticism. And, and these days, as most restaurants, the chefs are not there. Right. And that, that just, that's the open door. I mean, if the chef isn't there and you get a terrible meal, I, don't, I wouldn't blame anybody for, I wouldn't criticize anybody for giving a negative review or say it was too tough. 
So that's that's one point there. Um, you know, if when you see, have you noticed something else about restaurants today? If someone opens a restaurant, it used to be the restaurants would open slowly and they would event, they would get better and better. And after maybe a six months or a year, you would, you would have the perfect restaurant. Now, when a chef opened a restaurant, and it's usually his fourth restaurant or his fifth, he's in there for the opening for the first couple of weeks. The chef's in there. He brings in a sommelier. He brings in his best staff. He packs it with, with waiters. Everything's going to be per, as perfect as he can make it. And once all the reviews are out, these people start to disappear from the restaurant. Now, I think then if you review it, I mean, I think people should review a restaurant when it first opens and, it, and again, you know, six months later, because I bet you almost every one of them is worse than it was because the best people aren't there anymore. So one thing I do not have for restaurants is sympathy. And, and yes, I would have perhaps a little bit of sympathy if, if they were trying really hard and it was two people, you know, a man and a woman in a small place struggling and they were overwhelmed. Yes, I would then, but not a major restaurant. I would never have sympathy for it. Also, if you're putting your name on your restaurant, you're putting your name on your restaurant and I should have expectations. I write an article. My name's on the byline. Someone hates that article. I get something wrong in the article. You have a right to complain about my writing. I don't know why chefs hate restaurant critics so much, um, but they do. Believe me, they do. They don't like it. They don't like any of us. I don't think I know everything. I mean, I, 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 if you look at me, if you want to criticize me, um, I'm not a cook. Okay. I mean, I cook things, but I'm not a cook. So maybe you can catch me on something like that, but I don't know what else you could catch me on. Right. I understand wine better than probably any other restaurant critic in the country. Um, I, and I, I understand service. I actually say to myself, I'm not a, I remember I make this clear to people. I'm not a food writer. I'm a restaurant writer. So my job is to understand restaurants. And I think I do a pretty good job of that, but you know, but, but, you know, I don't. I have no sympathy when when a place opens and, and a few months later it's 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 much worse than it was, um, and that happens all the time. When you were a student at Penn back in the day, <laughs> if I were if I were going up to Allen undergrad at Penn and I said, "All right, I'm going to the Pub Tiki," should I get the uh, the chicken aku aku, or is there something better on the menu? What should I be getting at the Club Tiki? Remember that I write from a story I wrote. Did I write that? I wrote it. I mean, that was my. That was my first date was the pub tiki, the first date I ever went out on. And it was a, a, a woman who was a friend of mine and she was quite beautiful and I wasn't quite beautiful. And she went out with me to the pub tiki and um, I, I, it was hopeless. I realized then the pub tiki was not going to get me that, uh, that class of woman right away. Right. So, so but, but yes, I like the, um, sh the shrimp bongo bongo was very good too. <laughs> the pub tiki was a great, a great of all those of all those Polynesian restaurants that ever existed, I thought that was the best one ever. It didn't last very long. There's a bank where it is now. Rest in peace, Paptiki. Um, let me ask you a final question. It's 2021. As I mentioned, both our magazines are kind of shells of what they once were. You're talking to a lot of my listeners here, are young journalists, kind of aspiring journalists on their way up. It's a different world. It's a different landscape. Do you still, some kid comes up to you and he's like, I really want to be a journalist. Should I do this? Is this a career I should pursue? What says you? Wow. Well, first of all, I'd say marry a woman who has a good job or a woman, vice versa. Good health insurance. I don't know how in the world you can make a living as a journalist. You know, yes, if you get a job in the New York Times, they're going to pay you a good living wage. I don't know if it's a living wage for New York City, but they're going to pay you well. The major papers will still pay some people well, but they're all in danger. Everything is in peril. 
Um, if you're going to be a food writer, you, the first thing you ask them is, do I get to go in and pay for my meals or do I have to take a free meal to write about food? And if you have to take a food, free meal to write about the food, don't take the job. Right. I, I say that right away. There's no ethics involved there. You can't do it. Um, we were so lucky. I was so lucky. I, I, you know, I said I lived in, I thought I lived in the golden age of food. I also lived in the golden age of journalism. You know, I mean, I worked for newspapers and magazines that always had so much money. I remember when I was working for People Magazine, um, everybody started talking about how much magazines were worth. And, and I remember, this might not seem like a lot of money today, but we're talking about the 80s. People said GQ, for example, was worth 300 million, which sounds like a lot, right? People said People Magazine then was worth $5 billion. Yeah. And that was real money back then. You know, everybody didn't have $5 billion the way all the people in the stock market do today. So there was so much money. There was, and there was, and, the, and everybody, you had, everybody had ethics because they could afford to have ethics. That's what I feel sorry for. People work in places that can't afford to have the ethics that I believe in. And, and I don't blame them for taking the job and taking the free meal, but it makes me sad. I have so enjoyed this career that it's hard for me to tell people not to do it. But I always say to people, I feel like when I was coming up, when you were coming up, being a journalist, you were going to get a job somewhere. If you worked hard and you wrote well, you would get a job somewhere. It might be at a newspaper, it might be a magazine. And I feel like today it's like saying, I want to be, um, I want to eventually be on Broadway or I want to be, you know, an actor. I just think it's a much harder profession than it used to be. It's not just like saying, I want to be a plumber. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. It's, it's a, it's a level harder than it used to be. We, we had it good. Well, I'm, I had it good longer than you had it good because I'm older than you. When I was a kid, my, my father got me a job as a, as a copy boy for a paper in the summer vacation. And I got $75 a week. That was a fortune then. Yeah. That's what journalists get today. Yeah, I know. Someone, a friend of mine asked me to write a story for a little online magazine, a little sports story. And I said, okay, I'll do it as a favor. She said, I'm going to pay you. And I, she, I said, it was, by the way, it was a 1500 word story. And she said, I'm going to pay you. And I said, you don't have to. She said, no, I'm going to pay you. You ready? Oh, no. $25. Yes. It's a different world. I remember doing, I mean, not that long ago, you would freelance for GQ or Details or Esquire, and you could get some places four bucks a word, three bucks a word. You did better than me. Yeah, you there got you go. Four? I think Details paid $4 a word at one point. Wow, yeah. you're my hero. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a, uh, I'm a huge admirer of your writing, and- I really appreciate you doing this. Seriously, it's been delightful talking to you. I can't thank you. Well, next time you're in New York, we'll go, to, we'll go eat someplace where they treat me well. I want to thank today's guest, Alan Richmond, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can go to Amazon and order Fork It Over, The Intrepid Adventures of a Professional Eater, which is a collection of Richmond's essays about food and dining. If you have a chance and you enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make no money for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. <laughs>